0: All right today in the book of Acts we're going to a special church business meeting now don't panic there this is a wonderful church business meeting it isn't exactly like ours it's a little more important than the ones we usually have here but this meeting is going to determine the definition of what authentic Christianity is until Jesus comes all the way certainly until our time and to the Lord comes You, you, you know there's a lot of different kinds of churches in the world that identify As Christians they have the name Christian attached to them and how things are done in those churches can look very different some are very formal some are very informal some are sort of in between somewhere the music might be very different the style of worship can be very different the style of preaching might be different some of their practices are different and some of their beliefs are different now and many of those things are are very minor and they're just cultural or whatever and those are things over which good christians can disagree some of their practices like a presbyterian believing bible-centered presbyterian church might baptize babies and we wouldn't do that that would be something to have a legitimate disagreement over but we all believe in the essential doctrines of the faith together there are essential doctrines things that really determine whether or not a church is a true church or a false church and that's what we're going to be talking about a little bit there's really big issues and the big issues are things like who is God who is Jesus how do I how do I get saved by Jesus those kinds of questions so you have to get those right um, or you are outside the true faith. And of course the answers are found in scripture, right? For example, who is God? If, if you believe that God started off as a man and that he has celestial wives and that you can, you can say you're a church but you are outside of what authentic Christianity is. You don't know the real God and God himself does not think that you are a true church if you believe things like that about him. The second question I asked, who is Jesus? Well the Bible says he's the eternal word of God become flesh, God taking to himself true human nature for the salvation of sinful human beings. If you think he's Michael the archangel or a created being and you call yourself a church, God doesn't think you're a real church. How am I saved by him? That was the third question I asked. Well, the Bible's answer is that I am a a sinner, that I can only be made right in the eyes of God and forgiven for all my sins by the perfect, righteous life of Jesus Christ being offered up as a sacrifice on my behalf, taking my place before the judgment throne of God and enduring the wrath of God against my sin and receiving his righteousness that is credited to me. That's how I am saved. That's how you can be saved. That forgiveness that God offers is freely granted to me by God's grace. It's a gracious act and I receive it only by faith. Faith in Christ as my Lord and faith in Jesus as my savior. So it's that question how am I saved by him that is the subject of the first big church council in the history of the world and that's found in Acts chapter 15. If a church gets wrong the question how am I saved by Jesus then the gospel is lost. You're denying the gospel, the saving gospel of Jesus to lost souls if you don't get that question right. So it's extremely important. And at the time of this meeting, the the question came up with regard to Gentile salvation. How are non-Jews saved? And that was the most important question of the day by far. And it kind of arose slowly because the beginnings of the church were very very Jewish the first Christians were almost all Jewish and Jesus was their long promised Messiah uh, out of the Jewish scriptures the Jews were the chosen people but you got to remember if we accept that Abraham was the beginning of God's covenant people and he was then we should know that all the way back in Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis chapter 18 and Genesis chapter 22 God's promises to Abraham included the whole world and especially this key sentence, in your seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So God's plan was always from the beginning to bless people from all the nationalities there are in the world, all the language groups, bless them with his saving love, his saving mercy, not just Abraham's descendants. So over time, unfortunately, many Jews saw their special status as God's chosen nation to be not so much a a privilege to, to bless the world but a kind of personal superiority. It was a kind of an arrogance built into what grew over time and that's one of the great temptations of mankind isn't it? To take as a source of pride and vanity a gift that God gave us to serve other people. How can we be proud and uh, feeling superior about God giving us freely something with which to bless others with. I know Christians who act that way too that they start to feel kind of superior like they're better than other people because God's been gracious to them. Well graciousness should humble us not pump up our pride right. Uh, even a pastor or two down through the history of the world has fallen into this trap a little bit about this sort of prideful arrogance maybe more than two but uh, so did many Jews in the first century. It's kind of what they were taught and um, it kind of grew as they became more oppressed as a people. The more they were conquered, they became less idolatrous but more prideful because they people want to feel superior to their conquerors and oppressors so they rooted themselves in their faith that way that they, had, they were better than the Gentiles because they had the true faith. Well, it's true that they had the true faith as opposed to all the pagan things but were they better human beings? Well, that's That's the wrong way to look at it, right? Um, It was God blessing them and giving them these gifts that he gave them to serve the world with. So the whole idea of we are better and others are beneath us, that's not good. So in Acts chapter 15, this great controversy starts when some men come from Judea, where Jerusalem is and where the first church was and they travel 300 miles up north to Antioch That's the first missionary sending church. That's where Paul and Barnabas left to go on their mission field with. And right at this moment, they're there coming back from the first missionary journey. And they're teaching there. They're spending a long, many days there, the Bible says. So this is the church that successfully sent the first official strategic mission into Gentile pagan land. So verse 1. So men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, saying, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses you cannot be saved so this is salvation by circumcision circumcision was the dominant demand they had but as we work through this text we're going to see that there were more things they expected uh, involving a lot more of the Jewish system and the law of Moses but to them circumcision circumcision was the difference between a, a real convert and a pretender that was the mark that was the sign of genuineness It was salvation by circumcision, salvation by ritual. You could say it's salvation by the knife, which if you're thinking about salvation in terms of a soul, what would that have to actually do with it, right? But to them, it was everything. The Gentiles in Antioch, they said were not saved by faith. They were not saved by God's grace through their own faith in response to God. They needed to do this thing. Well, the great missionaries there, Paul and Barnabas were not having any of that. So verse two says, when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren, so the church in Antioch, determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. So this needed sorting out back home at the mother church where the most eminent men from the first Christian church could weigh in on this matter with participation from these uh, other churches. So notice the phrase there in verse two, apostles and elders. I mentioned last week that the decision about this would not be made by just the apostles. They could have done it. They could have dictated an answer, thus saith the Lord, this is the way it's gonna be, Uh, The apostles were the highest authority in the church. They had lived with Jesus. They were trained by Jesus. God still spoke through them. So they had all the authority in the world. They had two superpowers uh, as far as authority goes. Jesus personally chose them and God spoke through them. So they were prophets. They were prophets plus. Prophets with an extra layer of authority. But the apostles chose to involve all of the leadership the elders just regular guys that were elder qualified as well they were under the apostles in terms of authority but um, it was good for them to learn to clarify doctrine in this way so it was kind of training for them it was a good experience for them to be involved with this clarified the fact that they carried the responsibility for sound doctrine in the church just as elders do today so We have the apostles with us today, but only in here, only in the book. They had apostles with them, but the apostles wanted them to learn, to discern true doctrine from false doctrine. So they're included in this great council that's going to go on here. So watch for this phrase, apostles and elders you're going to see it in verse 2 and verse 4 in verse 6 and verse 22 and verse 23 so it's obviously a major point it never says the apostles it says the apostles and the elders the apostles and the elders so they want you to see that the elders are, are deeply involved in this whole thing so that's what luke wants for you so paul and barnabas traveled to jerusalem and they're representing this great missionary church in antioch along with some other leaders from there and on the way down they share about the wonderful response they had from the gentiles in Asia Minor when they preached the gospel there so verse 3 therefore being sent on their way by the church they were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria describing in detail the conversion of the gentiles and were bringing great joy to all the brethren when they arrived at Jerusalem they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders and they reported all that God had done with them. Okay so for believers in churches all along this 300 mile stretch from Antioch to Jerusalem there was joy at the news of the Gentiles responding to the gospel message because anybody that had heard the message and understood it properly would understand that it's by faith. Salvation is by God's grace freely given to us and received by us by faith alone. So. Jesus was being welcomed into many Gentile hearts and most of the people were thrilled with that. Now it's at verse 5 that we learn a little bit more about where the problem is uh, where it's coming from the idea that circumcision and following the old covenant rules were essential for salvation. So verse 5 says some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed these are believing Pharisees Christian Pharisees stood up saying it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. These Gentiles need to be told to follow Moses. Now are you surprised that there's Pharisees in the church? It kind of jumps out at you. It's like what? what? What does it ever mention that before? I think many Christians have a picture in their minds of the priests and the Pharisees and all those people being enemies of Jesus and that's just it. They were, his, they were the bad guys in the Gospels. And many were but not all And especially after the resurrection and the day of Pentecost. In fact Acts chapter 6 verse 7 says that many priests believed and became Christians as well. So a number of those men belonging to a group that were among Jesus' most dedicated enemies. They did become followers of Christ eventually. But it isn't always easy to take the Pharisee spirit out of the Pharisee. It takes time. It takes time. You know, few, few of us mature quickly and all of our past beliefs and all of our past thinking don't just disappear all the time. We have to grow in knowledge and in our understanding and in the word of God. So Peter, remember, he had to have a vision given to him, specially by God, of, of unclean animals to kill and eat before he would dare to go to the house of a Gentile and go under his roof. So Peter needed that too. So it's not surprising that there's a lot of um, traditional Jewish thinking that's kind of holding back those kind of things. Peter learned his lesson these Pharisee characters haven't had that experience yet. So these Pharisees become Christians haven't given up their zeal for the ancient ways and the ways of thinking. Even if Messiah fulfilled um, the promises and all of the sacrifices and all of that uh, and rendered some of those things no longer binding they they still saw a lot of it as critically important to your salvation to follow these certain Jewish and Old Testament things so the gospel of grace and the Pharisees position on circumcision and keeping the law are not compatible you cannot put those together you cannot put the gospel of grace and this Pharisee position together they won't go together so there has to be a decision made about what the truth is So this is not a follow your conscience situation in certain situations you can say well you know if you're convinced that a baby should be baptized we can honor that we're not going to do that ourselves but this is against the gospel this is about this is a salvation question so it's an essential matter a matter of essential truth so the stated belief is it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses that is contrary it's antithetical the gospel the real gospel of God's grace it's the opposite of good news in fact it's a direct challenge to the gospel of grace it says that Christ is not a sufficient savior doesn't it isn't that what that means whatever he did we've got to add more to that I have to win my salvation and of course I can't win my salvation that's what why it becomes such a troublesome doctrine when the church councils are called um, there's there's there has to be a decision made. So this is wi- that's why church councils get called because you have two positions that are not compatible and and the matter is essential. That's usually what brings forth a church council. The positions are not compatible and the matter is essential. Those are the two big things. So this is the first great church council in history. There have been a number of them. This is the first one. So you cannot compromise or distort or change what God has declared plainly so the New Testament you know it describes the church as the pillar and support of the truth that's the job of the church so when there's falsehood coming it's our duty our obligation to respond with the truth and to declare the truth so verse 6 the apostles and the elders good you got it the apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter and again I emphasize apostles and elders they're all in charge here uh, and they're always linked here in chapter 15 so th- I just think it's amazing that the apostles did that they, they really are practicing great restraint in a way they, they, they don't make decrees uh, they make arguments they're, they're persuading they're not just decreeing what's the truth so they don't appeal um, to their own personal revelation they don't insist on their full authority at all but they they speak but they don't command and they could command and maybe they have a backup argument to command, but they're going to persuade and and everybody's on board that is solid so it's they know it's going to go well they want the elders involved in this whole thing it's a very full discussion that they have everybody got to say their peace including the Pharisee Christians um, Luke begins verse 7 it says after much debate and that shows you right there that everybody was allowed to say their peace and to make their arguments so both sides had their say luke isn't interested in presenting the various arguments he just summarizes that a full debate occurred and what he does do is give us the heavyweights, you might call them uh, so we have four key speakers who are so persuasive that the matter is just settled as far as the church is concerned the church of and the church that's descended from the apostles the apostolic church um, what we would call orthodox christianity small o Orthodox that the right way the right way to believe the right way to practice our faith. So Peter is up first and we're going to talk about him today. Why do you think Peter is important. Well if you've been with us you should know because Peter presided over the Gentile Pentecost right the second Pentecost at Cornelius house in Caesarea. Cornelius was a Roman soldier a Roman officer and Caesarea was a Roman city in the Holy Land so Peter was called there, went into a Gentile home, and shared the gospel. But it's more than that. And that whole story is told in Acts chapter 10. If you were with us there, you probably remember. Go back and read it. And Peter tells the story in quite a bit of detail in Acts chapter 11. That's how important this is. So now he's telling it, and we're getting a shorter version here in Acts chapter 15. But you know, the original Pentecost was a special day after the resurrection of Jesus when the Holy Spirit descended on the disciples. It was very dramatic, remember there was a loud rushing wind but there was also these tongues of fire that distrib- distributed themselves on the apostles and the people there and they started to speak with languages they didn't know. They could speak other languages and they went out and they were praising God and then Peter got up and preached a sermon and 3,000 people were saved on that particular day. So it was a big event big event and that's when the church began that happened once and we've talked before that these special miracles that are given to the apostles speaking in tongues healing doing fantastic miracles and things like that the apostles could pass that on to other people by laying their hands on them but then those people could not pass it on beyond them that way the authority of the apostles was always recognized as the source of the truth right so it was a God's way of pointing always back to apostolic doctrine so it only happened once this this event where the Holy Spirit just came down after that it was the apostles laying their hands on people then they they might be able to speak in tongues they might be able to do miracles sometimes those gifts were passed on to people we saw that in Acts chapter 8 that way but in Acts 10 god gave a vision to peter and he gave a vision to cornelius and he worked it out so they would come together and peter would come to cornelius's house and preach to the gentiles there and cornelius got a house full of people there peter the jew cornelius the roman and all these people brought into his home and peter preached and while he was preaching without touching anybody or laying any hands on him the spirit just came down on them these gentiles and they started to speak in tongues and they had exactly the same experience that the apostles had in the day of Pentecost that's why we call it the second Pentecost so that's why Peter is such an important witness here at the uh, great council in Acts chapter 15. So in Acts 11 uh, Peter was criticized for eating with Gentiles in Cornelius's house and this is what he said back in Acts chapter 11 verse 15 As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as he did upon us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, if God gave to them the same gift as he gave to us also after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? That's why he baptized them. When they heard this... So the people that were complaining at that time, it says they quieted down and glorified God and said, well, then God has granted to Gentiles the repentance that leads to life. That's salvation. So that first group that first encountered this, they kind of had that same sort of Pharisaical feeling. Well, wait a minute. These people aren't even, but when Peter explained what happened, what God did, they agreed. And they said, yes, God has shown us that salvation, life is granted to the Gentiles on the basis of faith because they, they didn't do anything Jewish. So it was so clear that that was God's message through that whole event that God arranged that Gentiles are on an equal footing in Christ without converting to Judaism. So now here it comes again. So Peter gets up in verse seven. He says, says after there'd been much debate, Peter stood up and said, brethren, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God who knows the heart testified to them, testified to them giving them the Holy Spirit just as he also did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them cleansing their hearts by faith. Now therefore why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. Wow, there it is. Notice he says we are saved in the same way they are. That's kind of a neat trick to do do it that way. Nice touch, Peter. But... These are Peter's last words in the book of Acts, this great declaration, how it rings out and how it echoes down through the ages to all the churches that have ever been. No distinction between us and them, their hearts were cleansed by faith, and then this pure statement of doctrine, his personal apostolic affirmation of the truth how a sinner is saved we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they are also it's grace that saves it's a free gift you cannot earn it you cannot merit it you cannot do something for it so these are central essential doctrines theological truths coming to us through Luke carefully laying out how God did all of this with the Gentiles. That's what Luke has given us this great truth. So Peter describes how God demonstrated or proved that he accepts the Gentiles by faith. And then he gives the proper theological conclusion of what God demonstrated through that. So remember there's no more important question that you can probably ask for yourself than how can I be reconciled to God? How can I be saved by Jesus? What has to happen? Well, he has to do it. What must I do? Not keep the law, not perform a ritual. It's to believe, to put my personal faith in Jesus as my Lord and Savior. You know, we can round off the edges of our lives and try to be better people and all of that kind of stuff. We can be nicer, but we can't make ourselves righteous in the eyes of God. We cannot do that. If for some mysterious reason the thought ever enters your head, I. I really am a righteous soul then um, just read the Sermon on the Mount and that thought will come tumbling out of your ear and fall on the floor and roll away because you can't read God's standard and believe that you're a righteous person. You can't do that. We don't keep God's law and, and it's because there's something deep within us that doesn't want to. There's sin. Every human being is born a child of Adam and Eve. We're sinners by nature. So Peter even describes the law as an unbearable yoke. He says a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. The the law is actually a burden to bear. And of course the Pharisees added hundreds of rules. I mean laws on top of laws um, which are maddening in their details. But he's not just talking about that. He's talking about the law of Moses itself. It was a burden. Not because the law was bad. It wasn't bad. God made it. It's God's law. It reflects his moral character but it can't save us it can't cleanse our hearts it can't bring this confidence of forgiveness uh, from God in, in like Christ can it was a constant reminder of sin because every time you sinned you had to go and offer some kind of a sacrifice blood was had to be offered for your sins and you were always sinning right because we all sin so there were always new sacrifices to offer because nothing really solved the sin problem, so many rituals and so many cleansings and so much blood and sin was still there. It was still there. So the law of God is designed. It is a standard, but it's designed to reveal sin that we can't keep that standard. That's one of its main purposes that to show us we can't do it. So when people try to do that or pretend like they're holy and they've made it and they've achieved it, they, they, they haven't and you haven't. I haven't we can't do that the law was designed to reveal sin and there was seldom a feeling amongst Old Testament saints even the godliest saints of I am clean now they didn't have that feeling because there was always another sin on another day Jesus came to bear our sin the guilt and the shame of sin so my simple heartfelt repentance in his name is enough that's sufficient that to, to bring forgiveness from God because faith is all that's required it's a humble faith a, a repentant faith but that's all it is is faith so Peter says why do you put God to the test by placing a yoke on the disciples which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear they're testing God by doing this that's not a good thing to test God in all the scriptures, that's always a bad thing. It's always a sin in scripture to test God. Putting God to the test is what the Israelites did in the wilderness. God delivered them out of Egypt. He brought them with great miracles out of Egypt and put them into the land and then they started to grumble, right? Now where's the water and uh, we don't have enough food out here and uh, well, you, don't, you don't really love us all at all, do you? You're, take us back, we wanna go back to Egypt. Remember that whole thing? They did not believe that God was providing their deliverance. They weren't going to trust him. They were going to grumble about it. They put him to the test and then he struck them with curses and plagues during that time as well and offered them a way out if they would have faith. But that's what the Pharisees are doing. They, they don't trust that God's grace is enough for salvation. They're putting God to the test. They, they feel this religious impulse to add to grace for salvation to make the Gentiles conform to signs and symbols in the Old Testament that were simply there to point to Jesus, but which are not saving. And in the end, they're not necessary. They're not essential. All the law can do is show us our sin. That's its value, but it cannot save. Human beings have this tendency to try to fix what they think God hasn't done properly, right? Human beings are always doing that. Oh my, these these Gentiles, they only believe in Jesus. What about all their sins? Their unclean habits, those icky people, their nasty people, those sinful, sinful pagans. Only the law can save them from themselves. They must start with circumcision and then follow all that Moses commanded. That's what the Pharisees are arguing for. Peter says that's not what saves. Grace is what saves. And it's a gift by nature grace is a gift so we can talk about Gentile sin but what they needed was to be saved and to be delivered from those sins by the Lord Jesus he is sufficient for all things so Peter's declaration that's the line that just cannot be crossed you can't abandon that we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are We're saved that way, they're saved that way. So we're going to finish what happened at the Council of Jerusalem next week. But um, right now I want you to see uh, where this is going. Peter has made this definitive statement. Not only are the Gentiles saved this way, but everyone is saved this way. That's the point. That's the great truth to be affirmed. God is gracious, he's made salvation possible through Jesus plus nothing the council is actually going to choose a very interesting path which we'll look at next time but it never diverges from what Protestants call the doctrine of salvation by grace through faith and the biblical word is justified we are justified by faith and that salvation is a gift so we I'm, I'm going to take you to the Apostle Paul in a minute and show you how he uses that word justified but let me give you some definitions here. William Gurnall gave this very fine, simple definition of the doctrine of justification by faith. He said, we are justified not by giving anything to God, what we do, but by receiving from God what Christ has done for us. That's a really good definition. A more modern definition by uh, Jerry Bridges is really helpful too. He said, to be justified means to be Means more than to be declared not guilty. It actually means to be declared righteous before God. Me righteous before God? Yeah. It means that God has imputed or charged the guilt of our sin to his son. Jesus Christ. And has imputed or credited Christ's righteousness to us. So when God looks at us as believers. He sees the righteousness of Christ in us. Even though we're not that righteous but that's what he sees because Christ took our sins upon himself all of them and he's credited God's credited his righteousness to us so if you or I died without being justified we'd be in a world of hurt we'd have a lot to answer for you know as, as we are without Christ God would never look at us as holy or righteous or worthy of him we know that in our hearts we know that we're no we know we're not that good we know that we're not as good as we want other people to think we are we know that in our own hearts God knows the truth about us so there's no reason to pretend anything different and he is absolutely pure the Bible says God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. But we have plenty of darkness in us don't we? So God must save us. He asks of us righteousness and we flat out blow it all the time, time and time again. And he sends this perfect Savior to us to rescue us from ourselves. Can you handle just a little bit more scripture here? The council is going to stand with the truth but the the spirit of distrusting God, of seeking to be justified by works, that is going to plague the early church for decades after this council. The entire book of Romans is actually written to proclaim and defend and protect this idea of justification by faith being made righteous before God in Christ Romans is the theology book of the of the New Testament but Paul wrote the book of Galatians I want you to turn there he wrote the book of Galatians to refute specifically the heresy of salvation by law or by circumcision that Jewish men claiming to be followers of Christ were peddling Paul's wake everywhere he went these guys would follow and especially it got, kind of got stuck or accepted in the Galatian region. That's where Paul went on his first missionary journey into the region of Galatia. That's where these these cities were like Lystra were and Derby and th- he those cities are starting to take those doctrines when he, this is later after Paul is gone from there but they're, they're following and they're bringing. It might have come out of the, this great council these people or it might have been just people that adopted the same ideas but they started going to the churches and saying they need to be circumcised and some of these Galatian churches were buying it. They were eating it. It was a huge problem. So there's this whirlwind tour of Paul's argument I'm going to give you now. So it's it goes pretty rapidly. We're going to start in chapter 3. I'm not going to go through everything. I'm just going to kind of read and then kind of highlight some of the key points here. So. Galatians chapter 3 verse 1. You foolish Galatians. He's not going to mince words here. Who has bewitched you? Because they they never heard a gospel of circumcision. They heard a gospel of grace. So what happened? Who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? are you so foolish having begun by the spirit you are now being perfected by the flesh incompatible isn't it you, these two ideas can't come together you cannot have salvation by grace through faith and this idea of works and law and circumcision and things like that. You, they can't go together so he says how could you you were never told that you were never taught that by us how can you be accepting such ideas now he's shocked verse 10. Galatians chapter 3 As many as are of the works of the law are under a curse for it is written Cursed is every one who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law to perform them Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident for the righteous man shall live by faith However the law is not of faith on the contrary he who practices them shall live by them If you put yourself under the law As a means to be right before God. You are obligated to do that. And that's how you will be judged. That's what he's saying. You'll be judged on how well you keep those laws. And if you fail. There's only a curse left for you. And here's where Jesus comes in. Verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Having become a curse for us. It is written cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the spirit through faith. So Christ took upon himself the penalty of sin the curse that we deserve for our disobedience. It is in Christ and what he did for us that this blessing promised to the Gentiles actually comes to them. And here's this Gentile church and they've thrown it away. They're moving away from it. Is there anything wrong with the law? Well look down at verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? No! That's my version of his. May it never be, my translation says. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So the law is useful. It puts us under this category of sinner. I measure myself by the law. Sinner. That's good because it opens me to the Savior. It says I need a Savior. So the law shows us that we're sinners and we have a need. So we have the promise of salvation in Christ. Verse 23. Before faith came we were kept in custody under the law being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. We're being held by it, waiting for that faith to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be, here's the words, justified by faith. That's it. Justified by faith. The law revealed our sin, our need. God met that need. So our sin becomes Christ and his righteousness becomes ours and God sees in us the righteousness of Christ. So the law has done its job. If it leads us to Jesus verse 25. Now that faith has come now that faith has come we are no longer under a tutor. We don't need those laws anymore. We don't need those rules anymore. We don't need circumcision anymore. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus he says finally in Galatians chapter 5 he deals directly with the issue of circumcision verse 1 Galatians 5 1 it was for freedom that Christ set us free therefore keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery behold I Paul say to you that if you receive circumcision Christ will be of no benefit to you and I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law you have been severed from Christ you who are seeking to be justified by law you have fallen from grace for we through the spirit by faith are waiting for the hope of righteousness for in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love How could you make the mistake of following the other way after hearing that you see the incredible contrast there with with what was being pushed by the Pharisees in the church in Acts 15:1. unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses you cannot be saved that's what they were saying and here Paul says circumcision doesn't mean anything in fact three times in his letters twice here in Galatians he says circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing they don't mean anything doesn't matter what matters is he says faith working through love faith is an active faith that works but it's not the works that saves it's the faith that's the law of Christ faith working through love and verse 15 of Acts chapter 6 he says neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision but a new creation so the contrast is faith working through love the contrast is a new creation It's not the law, it's that God has renewed our hearts and changed us from the inside out. The work of the spirit awakens us to God and changes our hearts, that's what salvation does. It's not a a weight of law, a yoke of law imposed on us from the outside, it's a change that he does on the inside, writing his law in our hearts. So we want to serve the God we love. Christians don't see a heavy yoke in Christ. But the glory of Christ the beauty of holiness that's what we see and we strive for that just to be pleasing to him. We offer ourselves to him. Remember what Jesus said about his yoke? It's easy and it's light. A yoke you know it's what oxen wear to pull things. It fits really well. It's easy and it's light. It's not a burden. It's not this horrible burden. So we're not trying to measure up to win God's approval are we? We're trying to let what God's doing in us work its way out into our thoughts and our intentions and our actions. That's the promise of the new covenant. That's what the Old Testament promised and that's what Christ brought that we would be washed clean and that God would write his laws on our hearts. That stone heart would be replaced with a heart of flesh a soft heart a living heart. He changes us on the inside. So if we look to the law for life we're going to find death But if we look to Christ, who is life, we find life. He is our salvation. Okay, at the Great Council, it is Paul and Barnabas' turn to follow up on what Peter just said. And then Brother James is going to make a resolution, a action item for them to vote on. And we'll look at that next time. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful you delivered us from the yoke and the burden of the law, which never really brings salvation. It's always been by faith. That's always what you've sought from us. And it's what that great work of grace does in us. It brings forth faith so that we trust you and love you. And the law just doesn't become a burden. It just becomes a, a goal and a guide and a a, a, a direction for the morals that we're going to take, but we don't need all the rules and the rituals and the sacrifices and the washings and the cleansing because we're washed by the blood of Jesus, which is all sufficient. Thank you, Lord, for sending your son to bear our guilt and our sin, all of it, and to give us his righteousness so that you see us as righteous in him so we have nothing to fear. So we thank you and we give you glory and praise in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Hang on. We'll be back in Acts 15 next week.